0: Welcome back to the third episode of a podcast series that I haven't touched in about 10 months. I got a little distracted. Now you might notice, or you might not, depending on where you're consuming this content, that this is no longer an audio-only series. If you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc., you can keep doing that. You don't need to watch the video. But the whole point of this series was to put the Kardashian fame into a broader pop culture context. And in doing that, I do want to talk a bit about the Kardashians' influence on fashion, so I thought a visual component might be appropriate. So if you want to watch this as a video instead of just listening to it as a podcast, you can head on over to YouTube. And if you didn't listen to the last two episodes of this series, you'll be relieved to discover that They were mostly just there for background info, to explain exactly how the Kardashians got to a place in which they could book the reality series that ultimately launched their now well-established careers. So if you want to go more in depth on that lead-up, you can go back to those earlier two episodes. But I'm gonna do a little refresher here anyway since it's been so long since we've touched this topic. The first episode started with the introduction of our primary matriarch, Kris Jenner, born Kris Hewton. Kris was raised by her mother and grandmother exclusively after being abandoned by her birth father around age seven. Coming from relatively humble beginnings, the two matriarchs supported Kris as she began mingling with the upper class, achieving a new socioeconomic standing, mostly through her associations with other people. Her first serious relationship was with a professional golfer named Cesar Sanudo, whom Chris met when she was just 17 and he was in his late 20s. The two got engaged quickly when Chris was still just a teenager, but the relationship wouldn't last as Chris soon began an affair with another man about 12 years her senior named Robert Kardashian, a wealthy attorney who fucked around with celebrities like Priscilla Presley and OJ Simpson. After leaving César, Chris and Robert began an on-and-off relationship that eventually led to a marriage with four kids, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, and Rob. Are all four of them Rob's biological children? Not necessarily. We'll come back to that in a minute, but here's a little hint toward that discussion. After committing her life to Robert, Chris decided she still wasn't done fucking around and got caught having an affair with the soccer player Todd Waterman, ultimately leading to hers and Robert's divorce. While married, Robert encouraged Chris to quit her job as a flight attendant and devote herself to homemaking as a wife and mother, meaning that once the two separated, Chris had no income nor any experience as an independent adult. Things were looking pretty rough until Chris met her next husband-to-be, the world-famous Olympic athlete Caitlyn Jenner. With Caitlyn, she began a new career as a celebrity manager and expanded her family by giving birth to two more daughters, Kylie and Kendall. Kate also had some kids from previous marriages, but they don't matter as much. Though Chris and Robert tried to keep their split as amicable as possible, the Kardashian family became increasingly divided when Robert came out of retirement and started working as an attorney in defense of his friend OJ Simpson, who was being tried for the crime of murdering his ex-wife Nicole Brown. As one of Nicole's best friends, Chris began working closely with the prosecution with the staunch belief that OJ had killed her friend in cold blood, cause if you know, all the overwhelming evidence that he did in fact do that. Not only did the Kardashian kids have to navigate that situation as the children of two people on opposite sides of the same war, the media attention given to the case gave them their first taste of celebrity and scandal. I was 10 and they like, the teachers would
1: like, close down the classroom, we'd all be watching it on TV. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, like that's how, what it really? but, yeah. but that
2: feels so odd for that to, for. for You in that situation Mm -hmm. must have been
0: incredibly
1: strange. Oh, it was so crazy. But I mean, people were really cruel during that time, like, they
0: used to key guilty on my dad's car like when we were at church robert passed away in 2003 at the age of 59 and though it was his work as one of oj's attorneys that gave their name its original clout the kardashian daughters would expand their surnames visibility once chris scored their first reality series on the e channel after a different reality series starring lindsay lohan fell through contrary to popular belief Keeping Up With The Kardashians was already greenlit prior to the release of Kim Kardashian's sex tape in 2007. No matter, that tape played a massive role in the attention the family's new TV venture would receive, and that's where our episode for today truly begins. Now that we've put the Kardashians' rise to fame into context, let's briefly explore the history of reality TV as a genre. Whatever example comes to mind for you when you hear the term reality show can differ depending on your own acquaintance with it. The label encompasses a wide variety of programs from Big Brother to Pawn Stars to really anything on HGTV. No matter what specific series you associate with it though, reality shows are generally derided as trashy entertainment, but the scale of backlash against the format is not equally dispersed across subgenres. Pawn stars might occasionally be accused of ruining the History Channel, but it's not accused of representing the downfall of American society like the Real Housewives franchise sometimes is. The format of a Real Housewives show and others like it, including Keeping Up with the Kardashians, is sometimes compared to another genre that is also frequently derided and associated with a very similar audience. Well,
1: what do you think of your good-looking brother?
0: Brother? What? Though soap operas in their traditional format are pretty much dead, for a long time the lack of critical respect the genre received failed to stop its popularity. Popular soaps go on for decades, with new episodes airing most weekdays of the year. General Hospital is the third longest-running TV show ever made, but number one is a talk show and number two is British, so... I don't really think those count. Those who turn their nose up at soaps will criticize their formatting and production designs, and yeah, they're not cinematic masterpieces. awesome come on for a minute. But considering they're pumping out fully scripted episodes with multiple ongoing plot lines essentially every weekday of the year, the production value is actually pretty impressive. And no matter, we don't need to compare All My Children to shows like The Sopranos or Breaking Bad. They function differently because they're made to satisfy a completely different audience who understands the format's appeal. I
1: watch soap operas because they make my problems look very small. If I, uh, if I have thesis problems or class problems, all I have to do is turn on Ryan's Hope and watch someone have an abortion or someone be on trial for murder or having an affair with uh, their best friend's husband, who also happens to be their stepfather from another marriage, it makes Princeton life look pretty manageable.
0: The genre's called soap opera because it's dramatic like an opera, but airs during a time slot where a big advertiser is soap because for decades, the most reliable viewer base for daytime TV was made up of housewives that were home during the day.
2: During
1: any one week, 55% of the women in America watch soap operas.
0: That's also why soap operas are becoming increasingly irrelevant as the concept of a housewife or stay-at-home mom becomes increasingly anachronistic partially because feminist movements have made more women eager to take part in the public sphere, but mostly because a lot of families can no longer afford to not have multiple sources of income. DVR and eventually streaming services have also made the time a show actually airs mostly immaterial. The fact that General Hospital has held onto its slot for this long, despite the fact that in the current moment, soap operas no longer serve their previous, more practical role on TV, is itself a testament to the dedication of the soap opera audience. The genre's development initially filled a gigantic hole in the entertainment industry by making televised content made specifically for, and often by, women. Albeit mostly white, middle, and upper-class women, a lot of the elements of the soap opera that appeal to those women can be found in reality shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians. The stories are dominantly told from the perspective of women who make up a majority of the cast, Plot lines developed by a dialogue putting an emphasis on interpersonal disputes and personal relationships over action-driven or circumstantial conflict. The typical setting for most scenes is a home or something that functions like a home in that it's a setting the characters frequently return to, such as a hospital in general hospital or perhaps one of the dash doors in early seasons of Keeping Up. Soap operas and most reality TV shows are also different from other genres of narrative TV in that they don't have a structured beginning, middle, and end. Soap operas have a first episode, sure, a whole lot of episodes in the middle, and eventually each one will have a finale. But those things aren't made to be in congruence with each other. When you watch General Hospital, you're not watching with the thought that you're progressing to an eventual conclusion. Soap operas are all middle. They keep going with no intention to fully resolve anything, which is kinda like real life. You know how your existence just keeps going? You encounter a few issues here and there, resolve a few conflicts, overcome a few obstacles, but then something else comes up and you gotta deal with that, or an issue you thought you'd put to rest reappears in your life like an evil twin who just woke up from a coma and is coming back to town just to fuck your shit up. With Keeping Up With The Kardashians attempting to document or at least resemble the lives of the Kardashian family, the series plot lines work in the same way. At this rate with the Kardashians already two seasons into their new Hulu show, the family's franchise of reality TV will probably keep putting out new episodes until the family itself puts a stop to it. And I don't think that's gonna happen until at least their newest generation of offspring is well into adulthood. If they don't put an end to the Kardashian brand, the family can keep breeding new additions to their cast theoretically forever. Something else to consider is that historically, networks and producers of soap operas have been uniquely responsive to fan feedback. The fact that one scene can be split across weeks of episodes makes it easier for the writers to catch up with audience correspondence, learning which characters and storylines are connecting with viewers through fan mail, then adapting the plots in accordance. There are head writers on soap operas, but the final product that airs on TV is influenced by a range of factors that keeps it from maintaining a central focus or point of view. Similarly, the characters on Keeping Up With The Kardashians, aka the Kardashians themselves, exist within the universe that the show takes place in, reality. Much like soap opera writers are reading fan mail, reality stars are seeing the reaction of their audience on social media. This might not consciously change the direction of the show, but it is going to affect its subject's behaviors on some level, as will the subject's current standings in pop culture. Even with Kris Jenner being an executive producer on Keeping Up and the newer Hulu show, much of the narrative developments for the family's reality TV ventures are beyond her control. Reality shows are a communal creation with input coming from producers, cast members, advertisers, network executives, and also from the audience and larger developments in the real world. Critics often treat reality TV fame as an easy route to earn a cheap brand of celebrity, but making your personal life into content for entertainment is an emotionally chaotic endeavor. The TV show that's been credited as the first reality series, at least as we now understand the genre, was a show on PBS called An American Family. Filming began on May 30th, 1971, and ran until the end of the year, premiering in January of 1973. Similar to Keeping Up With The Kardashians, the show documented an upper-class family living in California. An American family became notable for its LGBTQ representation as one of the family's younger members, Lance Loud, became one of the first out gay men to have a prominent role on television. For all the shit reality shows and soap operas have gotten, it's worth noting that both genres have a history of pushing the frontiers for female and LGBTQ representation on network TV. Though the show was originally meant to document the mundane lives of the Loud family, producers of An American Family wound up capturing the family fracturing in real time when its matriarch, Pat, told her husband of 21 years that she would be filing for divorce.
1: I have uh, spoken to a lawyer, and this is his card, he would like to have you get in touch with him, and I'd like to have you move out, it's just like that. Well, that's a fair deal.
0: Much of the media attention on the Loud family was focused on the more negative developments depicted in the series. Lance's final conclusion on the legacy of an American family was captured in his telling quote shortly before his death, "'Television ate my family.'" There are always lingering suspicions around reality TV, questioning if the content found in the genre can really be classified as reality. Of course, the candidness differs from show to show, and a variety of factors, from onset producer meddling, to manipulative post-production editing, to the literal scripting of events, can affect how real situations captured on a series actually are. But the appeal of reality TV is largely that the events captured on camera are, to some degree, legitimate, even if presented through a very narrow lens. After An American Family was finished filming and the family watched the final product, Pat Loud reportedly sent the crew a thank you letter, writing, I think you've handled the film with as much kindness as is possible and still remained honest. I am, in short, simply astounded, enormously pleased, and very proud. Once the reviews rolled in and the public response wasn't quite as kind to the family as they perhaps predicted, the Loud's perspective on the series changed. A piece from the New York Times in 1973 writes, Bill Loud accused the editors of the film of New York leftist leanings. He thought they were pushing for communes and revolution, as if the film were anti-American because it exposed an American family as something less than ideal. The Loud sensitivity is understandable. They have been exposed to public scrutiny in a way they never intended or expected, and a life involved with good appearances has been publicly questioned. But I wish they understood and could be comforted by the fact that they are not separate or different from the rest of us. Our fascination with them is an expression of their ability to symbolize the common dilemma. It is important to remember that we see the Louds on an edited film, They claim happy moments were cut out, but knowing their tendency to insist on their state of felicity, including a happy divorce and a keen gay son deep into the drug scene, I would suspect we saw a reasonably true slice of life. Throughout the series and in this specific episode, I will point out moments in keeping up with the Kardashians that are less than candid, including some plot lines that are just outright bullshit. But for the most part, the Kardashian family's success in reality TV is built upon their willingness to be outrageously vulnerable about some pretty key moments in their lives. And if I can emphasize anything about the Kardashians in all my coverage of their careers and their lives, it's that what the Kardashians do and how they go about doing it is very, very weird. Of course, much can be said about the family's privilege. Each of them has an amount of money that is not proportional to the kind of labor or value any of them contributes to society. Given that we do not live in a meritocracy, saying the family hasn't earned their success is a moot point, but yeah, anyone living paycheck to paycheck wouldn't be wrong to find the family's wealth rage-inducing, but I would caution anyone from finding the family's lifestyle envious. The reason it took two episodes of this retrospective to even start discussing the premiere of Keeping Up With The Kardashians is that I felt like I really needed to explore what the fuck happened to this family to make them even want this kind of attention, where their professional success is directly correlated to their willingness to allow the public to observe some of the worst moments of their lives. There are a few TV shows that we can consider precursors to Keeping Up Success, One being an American family of course, another being the Osbournes, which followed the lives of heavy metal singer Ozzy Osbourne, his wife Sharon, and two of their children. Like with Keeping Up's early seasons, the Osbourne puts an already famous family, or at least a family with some recognizable figures in the Kardashians case, into a reality TV format which mostly resembles a sitcom. Unlike the Osborne's though, the Kardashian family wasn't quite as new to reality TV by the time their own series premiered. Caitlyn's son Brody originally appeared on The Princes of Malibu, then rose to prominence on the hills with his bestie Spencer Pratt. Not only did The Hills represent the Kardashian-Jenner's already established presence in reality TV, the series' emphasis on a mid-to-late-2000s upper-class Californian fashion and club scene was also a precursor to the kind of lifestyle that would be shown on Keeping Up. Courtney then became the first of the Kardashian sisters to be prominently featured on a reality show when she was cast as a contestant in Filthy Rich Cattle Drive. And before she had her own series, Kim was occasionally featured in The Simple Life as Paris Hilton's closet organizer and best friend. Undoubtedly, Keeping Up along with pretty much every reality show of the 2000s owes much of their legacy to the breakthrough success of The Real World, the MTV series that originally premiered in 1992 and helped prove the viability of the format. When I was in high school,
2: I The Real World came out, and I had told my best friend,
0: Oh my gosh, have you seen
2: The Real World? I'm obsessed with it, that's what I want to do. I want to be on a reality show. I know that's what I'm supposed to do. I just loved The Real World."
0: Reality shows would go on to explode in the mid-to-late 2000s when the 2007-2008 writer's strike put a hold on the production of many scripted TV shows. After the strike passed, TV executives barely cut back on the production of unscripted shows, given reality TV's low production cost and the speed at which each new season could be churned out. That's why Keeping Up only ran for about 14 years, but was able to produce 20 seasons and 15 spin-offs, most of which featured select members of the family's main cast. Now, an American family only encompassed 12 episodes in total and eventually prompted one of its members to declare, Television Ate My Family. The Osbornes ran for four seasons, though the family has stated it became increasingly artificial as time went on. The family members themselves have also voiced some regret about their time on TV. In 2010, Ozzy gave an interview to The Quietest, during which he said, You go to bed one day and you wake up the next and the world's completely different. Everywhere there's fucking cameras, you get attacked by the fucking things. The kids couldn't handle it. My wife couldn't handle it. On the one hand, it was phenomenal. On the other hand, I had to watch my family suffer." The simple life ran for five years, but the gimmick of that show never interfered much with Paris Hilton's or Nicole Richie's actual personal lives. They were portraying rich girls struggling to do non-rich girl things, the exact opposite of how they operated on the day-to-day. The Hills was discernibly too scripted to ever get that personal, and The Real World featured a rotating cast shown in a slightly augmented reality. It wasn't their real lives, just their real personalities, which they only had to display to audiences for one season. Keeping Up With The Kardashians is a distinctly personal series compared to similar reality shows. The fact that the family's reality TV careers have lasted as long as they have says something about the family's entertainment value as audiences are still tuning in to watch them, but it also has to say something about their psychology as they continue to volunteer their lives for the kind of spectatorship so many reality stars before them found ultimately destructive. Since there's so much to discuss, for this episode we're only gonna go through the first three seasons of Keeping Up with the Kardashians, because that is the amount of seasons in which the show existed as an independent property, before it got its first spin-off, Courtney and Khloe Take Miami, ahead of season four. The narratives of later seasons will get a bit more sprawling, but at least at first Keeping Up With The Kardashians operates like a reality TV sitcom, with early marketing calling the show a modern Brady Bunch, referencing the blended family aspect of the Kardashian-Jenner household even though Caitlyn's kids from her previous marriages really aren't on the show that often. The series is still family oriented, which contributes to its appeal. So let's introduce our cast of characters. The family member with the most recognizable name upon the series premiere was Caitlyn Jenner, though, Kate was going by a different name at the time. I'm Bruce Jenner. And I am a pushover for my family. Kendall, sit down! I did consider referring to Kate by what would be considered her dead name for these early entries of the series, since Kate has said in the past that she actually prefers that in some instances. She told The Guardian in 2016, I liked Bruce. He was a good person. He did a lot in his life. He did exist. He worked his butt off. He won the Olympic Games. He raised amazing kids. He did a lot of very, very good things, and it's not like I just want to throw that away. Kate is kind of a trans pick-me who panders to the transphobic instincts of the political right-wing, so I wouldn't blame anyone for writing off her comments as an expression of that pandering. But it isn't my place to police Kate's relationship to her pre-transition past. If it's easier for her to contextualize her life as starting with 65 years of Bruce, I'm not gonna argue with her. Especially when Kate is in a unique position as perhaps the most famous person to ever transition midway through their career. Perhaps she would feel differently about her dead name if there were literally any way for her to hide it, but Kate's pre transition publicity likely prevents her from seeing her former public identity as invalid. Still, because I don't want to contribute to the endorsement of dead naming, not for how it affects Kate, but for how it affects countless other trans people, I will be referring to Caitlyn Jenner only as Caitlyn Jenner when I'm not quoting someone else. Even apart from the obvious, though, Caitlyn's on screen persona throughout much of Keeping Up has changed drastically compared to her current public image. Her transition likely has something to do with that. Apart from a few select moments of physical affection, <laughs> what? Chris and Kate's marriage comes across as less than romantic, the most frustrating thing in my life is dealing with Chris, and yet it's easy to see how the two wound up together. Coming out of her marriage with Robert, who seemed to treat Chris more like one of his children than his partner, and left her penniless with barely any work experience in their divorce, What I imagine Chris saw in Kate was a project, one she could be the manager of, an Olympian who had gone from covering a box of Wheaties to having only $200 in the bank when they met. Kate had the clout Chris could and did build an empire with, and Chris had the ambition that allowed Kate to sink into the background of her own career. For Chris, the marriage was an opportunity to make money and be the dominant one within her marriage for a change. For Kate, it was perhaps an opportunity to allow someone else to take control of the brand management for an identity she felt at odds with. One of the most remarkable differences between pre-transition and post-transition Kate is the amount of attention her pre-transition persona was content to accept. Watching early seasons of Keeping Up, you'd think Kate isn't interested in the level and type of fame the other women on the show so desperately seek. Fast forward to her transition and Kate is exiting Keeping Up to star in her own reality series, where she absolutely seems to enjoy the attention inherent in her fame. Maybe if Kate had felt more comfortable in her public identity back in 2007, her presence on the show would have been different. But as it was, the dynamic between Kate and Chris painted the Kardashian-Jenner clan in such a way that people still mistake the family as an operating matriarchy, in which the supposed man of the house is content to take a back seat to his more ambitious wife. But the Kardashians are not a matriarchy. If we think of the family as a business, and they seem to, Chris Jenner might be the manager of its day-to-day operations, but Robert Kardashian is still the CEO. Even in his death, his presence looms to the point that Chris readily talked about her regrets leaving Robert while she was still married to Caitlyn.
1: I think I have one regret, and that was getting divorced. I really do, but then I turn it around, I always say, Kendall and Kylie.
0: Kendall and Kylie? I mean, sure, but what about your current husband? Is it true that Bruce
1: asked for your hand? Yes. From
0: Robert? Yes. Oh, well, that's weird. Now are there hints in these early seasons for Caitlin's later transition? Kinda, but not obvious ones. She often talks about needing guy time or implies feeling smothered in a house full of girls. Okay, you want to know what the life of a male when you have little girls? What right. it is? It's these little girls. They just love their daddy, everything is great, and then they hit about 12. But then you know what happens? What? Your wife hits menopause. (laughs) See, that's the life of a male right there. Which, in hindsight, could be seen as an overcompensation for her internal conflict as a trans woman. And Kate is actually the first person we see on the series undergoing any sort of cosmetic procedure. It's not specifically an operation to feminize any of her features, but it maybe does indicate her dissatisfaction with her then-current appearance. Other than that, Kate is just kind of there. Her primary role on the show is to rein Chris or the older sisters in when it could be argued they're going too far in their professional endeavors. How are we going to tell Bruce is practically a catchphrase during the early seasons of the show.
1: The only thing I can say out of all of this is that you learn a lesson. And I think that's what you have to say to Bruce. How are we going to tell Bruce? I'm not telling Bruce a thing. Oh, really? Do not tell him either. Let's you just wait. got a DUI and you don't think he's going to find out? I'm Bruce and then i just like, I don't want to go through this again. Does Bruce now? I don't even want to be there when Bruce receives this news because I honestly don't know how he's going to take it.
2: I don't want to upset Bruce. Have you told Bruce?
0: (laughs) Not exactly.
1: As if the FBI interviewing
2: my daughters
1: isn't scary enough, I still need to tell Bruce what's going on.
0: Her social conservatism in that way is consistent throughout her public life. She's also kind of an asshole.
2: I'll get shot for bringing this up, but don't you think you'd lose, lose a few pounds?
0: what
2: don't you think you should lose a few pounds
0: i don't think she should lose anything she's perfect the way she is
2: no i'm just saying do you think so
0: but kate does appear to take a more active role in the parenting of kendall and kylie than chris does giving her a persona on the series as a dedicated family man despite all of her kids from her previous marriages, complaining that she was never really a part of their lives?
2: Not having my dad at the wedding was, it was, uh, it was a bummer. Honestly, it really did hurt. I would have loved to have had her there, but you know, she had better things to do.
0: Chris obviously took on the role of the family's momager, emphasis on the manager part of that word. Even in her marriage to Robert, when she was literally a stay-at-home mom, Chris never appeared to be the more nurturing of the two. Ask the Kardashian kids about their upbringing, they'll tell you something about how their dad raised them.
2: I mean, we grew up in Beverly Hills, we definitely had a really privil- privileged life, but my dad was extremely strict.
0: The daughters have also joked in the past about their mother exhibiting favoritism, with her star child usually being the one that's currently making her the most money. Why does mom have a picture of you as her screensaver and not me? Because so mom gets 10%.
2: We're getting like a dozen of them, two dozen. Why do you dozen? whip Kylie's ass? Is it because she makes you a lot of money?
0: What is wrong with you?" I was just asking. That being said, part of Chris's role in the Kardashian brand is to be the villain, often taking the blame for any backlash her children receive in their careers. That dynamic is already being set up in the first couple of episodes as Kim regularly complains about how Chris manages her.
2: I cannot believe my mom booked me for this. This is the worst show ever.
0: No! How much- There's a persistent rumor that Kris Jenner was behind the release of Kim's sex tape. What specifically that means depends on the theory. As discussed in the last episode, Kim and Vivid Entertainment did eventually come to an agreement in which Kim dropped her lawsuit against Vivid, giving them the legal clear to distribute the tape in exchange for a few million dollars. With Kris acting as Kim's manager, she likely did have something to do with that decision. But there's no real evidence that Chris told Kim and Ray J to make the tape, nor is there evidence that Chris leaked it to Vivid herself or ever watched the tape, despite what Ray J, a thoroughly untrustworthy source, has tried to imply. All evidence shows that the tape ending up in the hands of Vivid Entertainment was out of Kim and Chris's control, but that hasn't stopped a lot of people from accusing Chris of pimping her daughters out. Kim Kardashian is a prostitute. Her mother is a pimp.
1: Worse than a prostitute, Kim Kardashian is a corpse. She's a body without a soul. So no, it is not an exaggeration to say uh, that Hollywood is satanic, because what could possibly be more satanic than that?
0: Okay, shut up. Really, that narrative works for the Kardashians' brand, because even if you look down on Kim for having a sex tape and you refuse to believe that the tape was never made for mass consumption, you can still see Kim as a victim if only of her evil pimp mother. The caricature of Kris Jenner as this evil genius who only cares about her children so far as she can make money off of them is the Kardashian-Jenner daughter's greatest scapegoat for not being considered evil geniuses themselves. Is that a fair depiction of Kris Jenner though? No, probably not. Kris is certainly not the most ethical person, nor the most nurturing mother from a traditional framework. But despite what some people would like to believe, the Kardashians are not automatrons programmed to seek fame and fortune, they are human beings with human motives. If you see the Kardashian-Jenner daughters as victims to their mother's pimping, you should also see Kris Jenner in a similar way. Remember, she was abandoned by her father at seven years old and left with a mother and grandmother content to let her become engaged to two separate grown-ass adult men when she was just 17. Because those men happened to have very enticing lifestyles. And I think it'd be a little short-sighted to totally vilify the matriarchs of Chris's life, considering for much of history, the only way for a woman to secure a comfortable lifestyle for herself was through marriage. There's a whole lot of generational trauma that can explain how the Kardashian women got to where they are, and an argument to be made that successfully managing her daughter's careers is the primary way Kris Jenner knows how to show love as a parent. It's why the sentiment verbalized in this famous clip, When I first heard about Kim's tape, as her mother, I wanted to kill her. But as her manager,
1: I knew that I had a job to do and I really just wanted her to move past it.
0: Isn't quite as villainous as some might want to portray it? Part of the reason the Kardashians have been able to hold on to and even expand their celebrity power for so many years past their initial rise in ways much of their contemporaries couldn't is that they come as a unified package. Not all of them are at an equal level of publicity, but they are all famous together, giving the older daughters especially a sort of sex-in-the-city, golden girls kind of appeal. In an article titled Keeping Up With The Kardashians, Embraced Female Archetypes, and Created an Empire, Libby Hill writes for the A.V. Club, It's not just that Keeping Up With The Kardashians builds upon the foundation of Golden Girls that came before, but rather that it taps into the unspoken blueprint for female camaraderie on television. Female social circles, particularly on sitcoms, are often represented in groups of four, which then break down personality-wise into the following established female archetypes, which I'll call The Slattern, The Simpleton, The Cynic, and The Center. The personality traits are broad but consistent and recur in show after show. Hill's analysis about the broad patterns of televised female social circles is spot on, however, I do have to disagree with her classification of some of the Kardashian siblings. Hill labels Courtney the simpleton of the group, defined as a sweetly naive character who, while not necessarily dumb, exhibits an often debilitating blind spot in which their hopeful innocence often renders them a bit of a fool. Courtney is more appropriately the cynic, defined by Hill as having a wry sense of humor who often wields a sharp tongue to guard a soft heart. Hill categorized Court as the simpleton due to her years long devotion to her toxic boyfriend Scott, introduced in tandem with Courtney in the very first episode of Keeping Up. But I would hardly call Courtney's relationship with Scott a blind spot of hopeful innocence. Details on that we'll have to wait for later in the Kardashian saga, but for now, let's just say that Courtney's relationship with Scott. Always seem to be one built from convenience rather than romantic idealism. Though it won't become so obvious until later seasons, since it forms the basis for much of Courtney's personality, I will encourage you to acknowledge the frequent discord between Courtney and her mother, Chris, which never gets really resolved.
1: But you were really angry about it.
0: I think
2: to myself, like I'm trying to put myself in her shoes, and I'm like, I would never do
0: that to my family." More so than her siblings, Courtney is the least forgiving of her mother's past transgressions, and that likely influences her emotional detachment from those around her. If anything, she's the Miranda of the group, definitely not the Charlotte. The fact that Courtney was the first sibling prominently featured on reality TV is indicative of Chris's goal to make her family reality TV famous. When the opportunity to put one of her daughters in front of cameras arose, she took it, despite the fact that Courtney is the most reserved of the eldest sisters. Chris told The Hollywood Reporter in 2017 that in the entire family, Courtney was the most reluctant to start filming Keeping Up. Courtney then told the publication that she used to go into a bathroom to cry during the first season. Watching her on Filthy Rich Cattle Drive, you don't get the sense that Court was born to be a star. Her on-screen charisma when separated from her siblings is minimal. But when shown in a natural environment, working off her chemistry with her Keeping Up co-stars, Courtney's dry sense of humor is an important aspect of the family's on-screen dynamic. Plus, in the early seasons, Courtney comes as a package deal with Scott Disick, who manages to function as the series' main comedic relief, even when the show was still trying to be a sitcom.
2: You know how I have sex pictures when I was 17? No. With Jeff. Sure. Someone's trying to, like, sell them to everyone.
0: And that was before your boob job,
2: is that why you're meant? No. Oh my God, it's gone. Oh.
0: Chloe is the most playful of the family, Though she outwardly presents herself as a harsh cynic, that exterior is noticeably thin as Chloe routinely reveals herself to be the most sensitive and idealistic member of the group. It's all speculative, but to understand her psychology, we have to at least acknowledge the rumor that Chloe Kardashian is not Robert Kardashian's biological child. It's not an unreasonable theory. In fact, I would say it's most likely true. Kris Jenner, it seems, had multiple affairs throughout her first marriage, even if she's only officially copped to the one. For sure, Courtney and Kim look more like their father and each other than Chloe looks like any of them. Her skin and hair are both lighter than her siblings, she has a different body shape, she's taller, and her face just has distinct features compared to her family members. In her book, Chris writes, Like her name, Chloe looked different. Different from everyone else in the family from the moment she was born. She had blonde hair and these greenish eyes. She looked a lot like my maternal grandmother Lou Ethel and Robert's mother Helen. Courtney and Kimberly came out dark and Armenian looking and Chloe arrived looking nothing like them. Some people have speculated that OJ Simpson is Chloe's biological father for no real reason other than people know Chris and Rob were close with OJ and Nicole and it's good gossip. But while it's certainly possible for a racially mixed baby to come out with a lighter skin tone, it would be pretty ironic if Chloe was the only one of the Kardashian girls to have a black father and coincidentally looked whiter than all of them. The most logical candidate that I'm aware of is Kris Jenner's former hairdresser Alex Rolden. Later in the series, a DNA test to determine Chloe's paternity will become a topic of conversation, but the family's first attempt at addressing Chloe's biological ancestry actually occurred in Season 3 during the episode Cinderella, where Chloe obtains a DNA kit to test not if she's Rob's biological child, but if she's Chris's, which of course she is. Cinderella seems to operate at least as an attempt to address the elephant in the room without actually pointing it out to those who aren't already in the know. Acknowledging that Chloe looks like she might have some different DNA from her siblings, but not even entertaining the idea that it's Rob's genes that are missing. I think Chloe is adopted.
1: Give me my. I want to see my birth certificate. Well, she she's is not adopted. Anyway.
0: She is just different in every way. You had different color hair, different color eyes, different color. Scanned. Chloe needs a DNA test. Yes, oh. let's
2: take a DNA yeah. test.
0: Chloe's paternal genes don't interest me on their own. I don't care if Chloe isn't biologically Robert Kardashian's kid, but the likelihood that she isn't does inform some of Chloe's behavior. In the Cinderella episode, Chloe laments the fact that she spent much of her childhood being treated differently from her siblings, specifically by Chris. I'm
1: the redheaded stepchild. Chloe, do this. Chloe, do that. My mom definitely relies on me more than Courtney and Kim. Like, I'm always the go to girl and the fix it girl. If you do not push, I will kill you. I'm push. trying, Chloe.
0: Thank God for you. Yeah, that's why you adopted me. Robert Kardashian allegedly believed Chloe wasn't his biological child, according to two of Robert's former wives. Rob claimed in court documents during his divorce from Jan Ashley that all four of the children Chris gave birth to during their marriage were biologically his. However, Ashley later said, He would never say in court documents that Chloe wasn't his. He would never do that to Chloe. He loved her. She's always been treated the same. In fact, he treated her even better than the other kids. Rob's final wife, Ellen Pearson, stated, He never would have considered a DNA test. He loved her very much. But Robert did question the fact that Chloe was his. Chloe later slammed the two women for fueling such speculations, but it would make sense that Chris treated Chloe differently early on due to her own shame of the affairs. And Rob, being a dedicated family man, wouldn't allow Chloe's questionable paternity to get in the way of their father daughter bond. For all of Robert Kardashian's flaws, of which he had many, He definitely did love his kids, and from every report I've ever seen, he made sure to show Chloe just as much, if not more, affection as he did his other children. It's been acknowledged many times by the family that Chloe took Robert's passing the hardest of the sisters. She revealed in a blog post that her father's death prompted her to lose a majority of her hair at 19 when he passed. Separately, she claimed that her mourning prompted her to gain a significant amount of weight, and Chloe's insecurities surrounding her appearances, specifically her weight, have been apparent throughout her family's time in the spotlight. She's frequently been referred to as the fat or ugly sister, something Chloe is well aware of. Don't
1: read it. It says, every time I visit this site, I have to close my eyes when a picture of this beast is posted and Kim, I keep scrolling. Kim, tell her to stop reading I'm not this. usually the one to say this, but she's one ugly mother
0: <sighs> Chloe, Why you're not ugly. Being... Though she does make some interesting hair and makeup choices in the early seasons, that lipstick is just not your color. By conventional beauty standards, Khloe Kardashian is obviously not unattractive. She is a beautiful girl just like the rest of the women in her family. But since she looks so noticeably different from her sex symbol sisters, particularly Kim, it's not hard to understand how she'll eventually become symptomatic of intense body dysmorphia. The younger Jenner girls will later show symptoms of some mental health struggles as well due to their early exposure to such scrutiny, but for now, their roles on Keeping Up are just as the main cast's little sisters. Kendall and Kylie's plotlines were never all that central in the early eras of the show. Still, even with the cameras never following the younger two around in the same way they follow the lives of Kim, Courtney, and Chloe, Important milestones in the children's developing adolescence are captured to a degree that was certainly not protective of the girls' privacy. I don't think anyone benefits from having footage of themselves as a pubescent teenager so readily available to the public, but when Keeping Up premiered, neither of the Jenner girls could have any clue what being featured on a reality program would mean for the rest of their lives, as Kendall was only 11 years old and Kylie was just 9 at the start of the show the entire family has Kim to thank for their fame. Though the family did secure keeping up prior to the leak of the sex tape, Kim Kardashian superstar undoubtedly increased the family's publicity and likely contributed to the series' breakthrough success. However, even without the tape, Kim is still the standout of the show. Khloe and Courtney are funnier, Chris has more industry experience, Caitlyn has more reason to be a public figure in the first place, and yet, Kim commands the best on-screen presence of the family. She has a comfort in front of the camera that surpasses the rest of the cast. And more than her siblings, early era Kim had an insatiable hunger for celebrity. People throw around the phrase famous for being famous a lot when discussing Kim K and her family. I already discussed in the last episode why I think that categorization is a bit silly But yes, for sure, Kim's fame is not attached to a specific talent or accomplishment the way most other public figures' fame is. She doesn't sing, dance, act, write, etc. So, how did Kim Kardashian get so famous is a fair question with a complex answer. Kim was already gathering some clout in the entertainment industry prior to the reality show. Her dad was one of O.J. Simpson's lawyers, her stepdad was an Olympic gold medalist, she was friends with Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie, and worked for other celebrities like Lindsay Lohan and Brandy, giving her a lot of entry points into the industry. She also got friendly with tabloid journalists who would occasionally put her in magazines more or less as a favor, leading her to occasionally get paid for club appearances as a hot California socialite. She rarely turned down gigs, meaning her face was eventually everywhere, in tabloids, advertisements, a Fall Out Boy music video. Once Keeping Up premiered, the series made sure Kim Kardashian became a bonafide celebrity, by regularly insisting she already was one. Did you guys know that I'm like the number one Google search last week? Oh my god, Kim, shut up! you're so into yourself. And
2: then yesterday I was the top AOL search for the whole week.
0: Thanks to the TV show, no longer were promoters merely paying Kim Kardashian the rising socialite to come party at their clubs, they were paying Kim Kardashian, the reality star, to come party at their clubs and bring her TV cameras. Keeping Up became an advertisement for the Kardashian family, their own companies like their clothing store Dash, which is prominently featured in early seasons, and any brands willing to partner with them. Just look at episode three of the series, where the girls do a photo shoot for the Girls Gone Wild bikini line. Sometimes people
1: have a negative connotation about Girls Gone Wild, but this bikini line is so fabulous, high-end couture bikini line.
0: These scenes reinforce the audience's impression that the sisters are in demand as brand ambassadors because they're so famous, and it advertises the bikini line itself, giving the Girls Gone Wild brand additional publicity. Of course, then, other brands would want to get in on that action. Thus, the more companies the series showed the Kardashian sisters promoting, the more in-demand and famous the sisters appeared, then increasing their business opportunities exponentially, and creating a cycle in which their celebrity status was practically guaranteed. Kim's on screen persona in the early seasons became that of an egotistical diva, which is clear even in the series opening theme.
1: Where's Kim? Kim is always late. Oh. I'm
0: here. Get out of her way. Stop, jealous. In the first episode of season two, literally titled Kim Becomes a Diva. Producers try to narrativize this apparent aspect of her personality in a contrived plot which forces that storyline into a traditional family sitcom format, complete with Kim learning a valuable life lesson in the end. You know, the old Charles
2: Barkley line, hey, I am no role model. Well, wrong. You are. Especially to these kids. They look up to you. You're their big sister. You just gotta keep the whole thing on proper perspective. Don't let anything go to your head. Just stay nice. Be nice to everybody, including your mother. You know, you just cannot act that
0: way. I'm not gonna downplay Kim's narcissism. Her desire to become famous without cultivating a specific skill already indicates that she is pretty conceited. But that doesn't mean her diva behavior wasn't also exaggerated in these early seasons. Go back to that intro, declaring Kim is always late as Kim hops in front of her family members to seize the spotlight is a great way to set up Kim's character as a bratty prima donna, even though in real life, Kim Kardashian has the opposite reputation from being always late. I do think
2: it is like a disrespectful thing for time because everyone's so busy. And on Keeping Up With The Kardashians, I was late for the intro just like running in just a few minutes and someone yelled, Kim is always late. And so everyone thought I was late for the last like 15 years and I was definitely the one that was there on time and that pissed me off so badly.
0: And though Kim was getting paid to make appearances at nightclubs, once you get a few episodes into Keeping Up, it's revealed that Kim barely drinks alcohol and her whole family constantly mocks her for being a bore. Not really fun Hollywood socialite material, but that's what her version of celebrity was doing at the time. All that time Kim spent partying with Paris and letting herself get photographed making the most of the LA nightlife, she wasn't actually indulging in her own preferred lifestyle, she was just marketing. But that's part of what makes Kim such a good reality star. She's willing to take on a character and persona that doesn't fully represent her personality, as long as she knows the character she's playing is what an audience wants to see. She even sells out her sisters on occasion, telling The Hollywood Reporter in 2017, I'm very aware of what fans want to see. I think if you ask the crew, I probably produce the most because I know what my sisters might not be sharing, so I'll tell them, go over to Court's house right now, something is going on. And that's it. That's the cast. Caitlin, Chris, Courtney, Chloe, Kim, Kendall, Kylie. all right. i'll I'll talk about Rob. I'll say straight up, I don't know how to talk about Rob Kardashian Jr. without being a dick. It's not cause I hate him, though I definitely hate some of the things he's done. It's just that Rob Jr. has never really fit into the Kardashian family brand in a very productive way. His involvement on the family show will waver throughout the years, but most of the time his storylines are featured, the focus is on what a fuck-up he is. I wish there was a nicer way to word that, but it gets to the point. You do not think it through. You listen to everybody else, because you're a dumb <laughs> So now you're going to live with this. Don't call him a dumb <laughs> He has to know that he's a moron. To be fair to him, Rob was perhaps dealt the shortest hand of the family, or at least he was dealt an inadequate hand for the specific game his family decided to play. In the episode Cinderella, Courtney tries to get Robert to commit to a job search, and he doesn't come out of those scenes looking amazing.
2: How much money do you think I'll be getting at this job? It's like a paid internship. I'm sure you'll get like a little bit more than minimum wage. My dad always uh, told me time is money, so. You know, I'm 21 years old, I would love to, you know, have a couple million dollars by 25, so I'm not gonna waste my time doing some minimum wage job.
0: It's kind of ironic that Courtney is the one trying to get her brother employed, since Court is infamously the laziest of the sisters, at least the older sisters. All the women in the family, though, seem to have a better work ethic than Rob. But all the women in the family also seem to have processed their personal trauma more productively than he has. Unlike his sisters, Rob was still a kid when their father died, and as the only male offspring literally bearing Robert Kardashian's name, the pressure to live up to the expectations set by Rob Sr.'s looming presence over the family is of course a lot to handle, especially when Rob Jr. cannot participate in the emerging family business the way the rest of his siblings can. Reality TV is the modern soap opera, not only in its similarities to the genre, but also in its more capitalistic function, to sell things to women. The name Keeping Up With The Kardashians comes from the phrase Keeping Up With The Joneses, based on the name of a 1913 comic strip about a family who struggles to keep up with their well-off neighbors, the Jones family. To keep up with the Joneses means to continuously upgrade your wardrobe, home appliances, decor, etc. in order to appear as affluent as the social circles in which you wish to participate. The Kardashians have taken on the role of the proverbial Joneses, flaunting their luxurious lifestyles on their TV shows while selling viewers the exact products they claim to themselves love. With the Kardashian sisters' aesthetic appeal, there is a specific bent to the commodities they endorse. The products are almost always from fashion or beauty brands. There's the Girls Gone Wild bikini line shown in episode 3. Some other early ads include Bongo Jeans, Kim Kardashian's First Perfume, Shoe Dazzle, which Kim is listed as a co-founder for, a workout DVD that purports to help you achieve the perfect butt, or the infamous diet supplement, Quick Trim. More endorsements will come up later. These are just some of the products the sisters, mostly Kim, were selling from 2007 to 2009. Caitlyn might not have been out yet as a trans woman, but even publicly identifying as a man, she never had as much trouble fitting into the family brand as Rob because she already had a pre-Keeping Up claim to fame. Even so, at least at first, Kate's personal brand did suffer from her association with the Kardashian women, as she lost a number of sponsorships upon Keeping Up's premiere. The show's success would make up for those lost opportunities eventually, but being involved in a trashy reality show that was mostly watched by women ages 18 to 34 wasn't initially great for Caitlyn's more masculine public persona. For Rob, the terrain was even harder to navigate. His character, in the early seasons of Keeping Up, is that of a directionless college graduate with little ambition and zero job prospects. Sure, his family had heaps of connection in business, retail, and entertainment, but the family business itself was mostly inaccessible to him as his sisters built their careers on their embodiments of a sort of idealized femininity. Even the Dash boutiques only sold women's apparel. It doesn't mean that Rob's job prospects were hopeless, But it did set him up as the black sheep of the family, which will of course affect his self-esteem and identity going forward. For now, the most promising Rob Central plot on Keeping Up revolves around his relationship with Adrian Bailan of the Cheetah Girls.
2: This is my first time I've been in love. I'm starting to act as I was before my dad passed away. I definitely feel that my dad brought us together. I tell Adrian that all the time.
0: Aww, what a cute couple. Isn't it so nice that Rob gets to end the third season happily in love? We're like all in shock, like is this a joke or
2: something? Our full name is tattooed on him. And we are just
0: like, what are you doing? I just hope he doesn't do anything to fuck that up by next season. So Keeping Up premiered in 2007. It was an immediate record-breaking hit that combined the appeal of trashy reality TV with the sentimentality of family-oriented sitcoms. Cast members are constantly fighting with one another, and occasionally, conflict escalates until there's a physical altercation, like in all great reality TV dramas. For instance, there's this iconic fight between Kim and Chloe in season two. Don't, don't be. be f-
2: f- so rude! Are you kidding me? I, I swear got, to God. Stop. Don't be. What are you doing? Throw the thing on me. I'll f- hurt you. Don't do that. Stop. Oh my God!
0: Of course, that's a pretty restrained altercation compared to some more chaotic shows, but that does work for the format. Family members get mad at each other, but rarely does one fight cause irreparable damage to the overall dynamic. They always make up in the end, which gives the series greater longevity than shows where cast members completely burn bridges with one another in service of a wilder plot. Could some of the plot lines be fabricated? Sure. I don't know how much I believe this specific altercation wasn't staged, but the deeper conflict between the sisters definitely appears to have been at least a little real. Why are you crying?
1: (laughs) This conversation was supposed to make us stronger and not like more distant from each other and i don't want us to change our love and our relationships with each other. Chloe's
2: just really upset about it and wants us all to get along. We
0: had a fight. Like let's get over it. I don't believe for a second that any of these girls are good enough actors to pull a performance like this off without it being somewhat genuine. So how real is keeping up overall? There's a sliding scale of bullshit every plotline could be evaluated using On the worse end, the family does use their shows for good PR and damage control in ways that are a little yucky. In season one, Chloe and Courtney temporarily take in a homeless man in a plot that functions to show the girls as a little less snobby than their privileged upbringings might suggest. The cutest man I've ever met. Who? Shorty. He's our homeless man that we adopted. That storyline isn't fake. As far as I'm aware, Shorty was actually homeless, and the sisters did do some good by taking him to a dentist, getting him some new clothes, and then dropping him off at a homeless shelter. I mean, to be honest, I do think they could have done a little more, but whatever. Some good was done. In front of cameras, with confessional statements about how nice it feels to give back. It's PR. At best, you could say that by filming their interactions with Shorty, the family is bringing attention to the issue of homelessness, but it's not like it ever tackles the issue at an epidemic level or even explores the circumstances that led to Shorty's individual homelessness. How do you become homeless? How do you become
2: homeless? You know, they don't have any money, they don't, can't stay any place, and, you know, they need a little
0: help, but they wind up on the street for a
2: while. Governor Newsom wants federal funding to
1: house the homeless. The program will use taxpayer dollars to provide up to six months of housing for low-income people. Will throwing money at the problem solve it? No. <laughs> Thank you. You know, they don't have any money.
0: It humanizes the Kardashians way more than it humanizes him. A storyline that's almost complete bullshit is the depiction of Khloe Kardashian's arrest for a DUI in episode 5, an episode called Remembering Dad. So what exactly does dad have to do with Khloe's arrest? Well, according to Keeping Up, the reason Khloe got a DUI is because she was drowning her sorrows with booze on the anniversary of Robert Kardashian's death. The story about Chloe getting a DUI is real. She was arrested, but the cameras weren't around to capture it, so the footage of Chloe getting pulled over and slapped with handcuffs is a reenactment, not actual events. And sure, whatever. They do put up a card that says that in the episode, so they're not being totally dishonest about that part. But the arrest still happened in March of 2007. Robert Kardashian died in September of 2003. Khloe's DUI had nothing to do with the anniversary of the loss of her father. Not to be a dick, but I doubt it had anything to do with her grief at all. She was a 22-year-old with more money and privilege than anyone in their early 20s should have. She probably got fucked up at the club and drove home kinda drunk, assuming there'd be no consequence for it. Chloe was simply being irresponsible. Further proof of which can be seen in how she responds to those confronting her about the literal crime she committed. If you feel like you've had a little too much to drink, Chloe.
1: Mom, why didn't I you didn't call me realize. I didn't realize. All right, Chloe. Well,
0: this is just freaking me no. out. It's a accident. We get even more evidence a season later when she had to go back to jail for violating her parole. Chloe, how do you get kicked out of a DUI class?
1: because I missed two consecutive weeks in a row by going to Australia."
0: Being an irresponsible brat is a normal rich kid thing to do, but it conflicts with the Kardashian family's clean-cut image, so they use the best excuse at their disposal. Chloe was in mourning because she loved her daddy so much. Her grief is real, the DUI is real, but her blaming the DUI on her grief is bullshit. Other scenarios on the show are your typical reality TV manipulation, such as manufactured situations like that of the second episode where Chris hires a nanny to watch Kendall and Kylie so Caitlyn can get some relaxation. Even though she's in the same house as the girls and the babysitter the whole time, and Kendall is like 11 years old so is that really too young for her and Kylie to be home alone for an afternoon? Whatever, Point is the plot doesn't make any sense to begin with. The drama comes in when the nanny Chris hires turns out to be a slutty weirdo, at least as the show tries to depict her.
1: Oh my god, she's wearing a bra top in front of you? I think that's so inappropriate. Oh, you think it's inappropriate? I've been here all day long.
0: Should I fire her? No. Mother hired her, mother fires her. In real life, producers cast porn star Brie Olsen for the role of the babysitter, and all that weird stuff she did on the family's property, producers told her to do that. Brie told Cosmopolitan, though, that when the cameras weren't rolling, she was actually babysitting Kendall and Kylie, saying, The production team was like, here, do homework with them, but do a really bad job. So I was trying to come up with things to say or do that seemed bad or stupid, but then when the cameras left the room, the girls are sitting there looking at me like, well, are you gonna help us with our homework? So I really sat there and was helping these girls with their stuff. And it was funny because it was like, as much as the production tried to set it up, it was so real at the same time because whenever the cameras turned off, that's real life. The scene of Chris firing Bree was obviously set up in advance, though Bree didn't think the family ever knew she was a porn star saying, I think that only the producers knew. And I think they hired a porn girl because of the scene in the pool where they have me take my top off. That happens a lot in mainstream movies or in television or whatever. They'll automatically go to porn girls because they know that they're okay with getting naked. The producers also wanted, she thinks, someone with a trashier aesthetic to freak the family out. And though Bree didn't really fit that mold, that didn't prevent Chloe from using some choice words to describe her on the set.
1: My mom supposedly called a really reputable agency, but it looks like to me that she called hookers are us. This girl is trashy. Mom, there is a whore watching your children basically (laughs) topless around
0: your husband. You need to get over here before your husband leaves you for this 12 year old biatch. This might be a good time to mention that early seasons of Keeping Up feature an unbelievable amount of slut-shaming, despite the fact that much of the family's initial publicity was based off the publication of Kim Kardashian's sex tape. Sure, the tape was originally meant to be private, but it's not like Kim didn't further capitalize off her sex symbol status afterward. I mean, it only takes three episodes for the family to start shilling for the Girls Gone Wild franchise. And in case you forgot or are too young to know, Girls Gone Wild started as a franchise of videos where a bunch of skeezy guys convinced 18-year-old girls to get drunk in their van and then film them taking off their clothes, if not doing other stuff too. It is an inherently predatory type of pornography, and the Kardashians' close personal friend, Joe Francis, is the founder. Oh, and Joe Francis is also a rapist, just, I should mention that. Hugh Hefner is a predator too, but here he is in episode 4 promoting the Playboy brand, as well as the other e-reality series The Girls Next Door. Another bit of suspected bullshit in Keeping Up is the little back and forth about whether or not Kim will pose nude for the magazine. They pass it off that Kim was told she wouldn't actually have to be naked to be featured as a Playboy centerfold, but discovers later that this isn't true.
1: Kim, from the get-go, this was a, what they call a celebrity photo shoot. And you don't have to take your clothes off at all. What they want you to do is take all your clothes off so that they can cover you with
2: stuff. That's not what they were doing before. And you're saying, take it off, take it off. They're getting upset, they're getting upset,
0: take it off. I need someone to be like, no, she's not taking it off. She'll write you a check for double the money and say, you, and walk out of here. I find it a bit hard to believe that Kim would have ever been told that nudity wasn't a requirement for the gig, but it works for her good girl brand if the series shows her agonizing over the decision to pose naked, then ultimately deciding to go along with it just because Playboy is such a classy brand.
2: It will not be explicit. I mean, that is what sets Playboy apart from the other magazines. Always
0: the best. Classy that same logic is used to shame rob jr for dating a stripper at one point in the first season only for his sisters to set him up with a playmate later
1: have you ever been to a strip club
0: they're sick (laughs) my brother is not
2: dating a stripper that's sick i'm gonna find him a nice normal girl hello hey kara it's steven i'm calling from kim's phone because she wants to um Sets you up with her brother.
0: Because sex work is okay, but only if it's in service of institutions owned by rich, powerful men. Men who may or may not be guilty of sex trafficking and or other sex crimes.
2: I started the magazine with the December
0: 1953 issue. Oh wow.
2: And I happen to have Marilyn Monroe <gasps> on the cover and I didn't know that. Inside as the first playmate of the month.
0: Okay, you published that without Marilyn's consent, but whatever. Some of the slut-shaming and whorephobia present in the early seasons of Keeping Up is just a product of early 2000s misogynistic culture, but it also highlights how the Kardashian family has always prospered with some very restricted acts of subversion. The sisters helped expand Western beauty standards to include more than just the stick-thin body ideals of the 2000s, but it's not like their curvier bodies don't still adhere to the kind of bodily proportionality our society has deemed acceptable. Kim also benefited from our culture's increased sex positivity. Why did you make a sex tape? Because I was horny and I felt like it. (laughs) (laughs) But she never pushes the boundaries of sexual expressiveness far past the traditional principles that shame the women who intentionally do the kind of tape for a living that Kim became famous for on accident. She's walking the line between Madonna and whore while turning her nose up at one side of that divide. But Keeping Up With The Kardashians actually thrives on another sort of dichotomy. Half bullshit, half brutally vulnerable. The format for the series will loosen up in time, but in these first seasons, storylines are contrived and crammed to fit within a 30 minute runtime, as if it's a scripted sitcom. Not really treading new ground there, even if the scenarios are based upon real events. In the first episode, Chris confronts Courtney about her concerns regarding Courtney's relationship with Scott. Supposedly, Chris has information indicating that Scott has been cheating on Courtney. The interaction after that is supremely unrealistic. Maybe not scripted, but definitely not natural.
1: I was talking to Cece because
2: a friend of hers dated Scott, you know, a couple months ago. Doug, I know all about it. You don't know the time frame, we weren't even together. I know exactly what you're talking about."
0: You knew about this the whole time? I would guess that this conversation isn't totally invented, but a recreation of a night that took place prior to the family getting a reality show to document such events. It's kind of real, but not candid. Later in the episode, though, Kim is getting dressed to appear on The Tyra Banks Show, one of the first big interviews of her career, and she's shown being genuinely stressed out.
2: I love this dress. This is what I wear all the time, so I want to give it to her.
0: Did she say that she wanted it? No, I just I don't I want to fill up the segments so she doesn't ask me like questions that I don't want to answer with oh. like the tape and stuff. <laughs> It's a small moment, but perhaps the first in the series that actually feels revealing for one of its characters. You get a sense of Kim's anxiety, how seriously she takes her career, and the planning put behind her public appearances. I like this the best.
1: I think you look like so chic. That doesn't look right. It's a daytime talk show. This is like perfect. Like that's not gonna look right.
2: Like I feel good in this one, but I also don't want to be super boring. Should I just bring my whole bag?
0: The whole suitcase? I have no choice. And that's a bit ironic. One of the realist early moments in the show, and it's directly related to the family's professional endeavors as public figures. But that's often when the show is at its most vulnerable. When they drop the curtain on their professional lives and the emotions that pertain to them. That's most obvious in the final episode of season one, an episode aptly titled The Price of Fame. It starts with Kim complaining that the press writes untrue things about her, especially surrounding her dating life. Look, it says who is dating Kim Kardashian.
2: No. Okay, let's see how many are true. One, two, three, four.
0: Four out of ten are true. Then, things get worse. Kim receives a phone call notifying her that someone was trying to sell nude photos of her and her sister Courtney, taken while both sisters were still in high school. To clarify, the photos were taken of Kim and Courtney separately, and from how I understand like a year apart, they weren't photos of the two of them together. I feel like I need to say that before Candace Owens tries to accuse the family of committing incest. Again? In How They Portray Events and Keeping Up, Kim stole the photos from Courtney as a practical joke, though Kim's ex-husband, Damon Thomas, has since implied that Kim actually gave those photos to someone. I'm assuming Damon himself, since they do mention him in the episode. The last person that had access to these pictures that I know of was my ex-husband.
1: I just want Kim to give you a heads up that how far this is going.
2: So I call my ex-husband, and he seems to have an idea of who could be causing this trouble—a friend that once dated his house.
0: And a report from the Daily Mail once literally published the allegation that Damon showed naked pictures of one of Kim's siblings. I'm assuming these photos of Courtney to Rob Senior, branding the siblings whores—a word I already know he's very comfortable using, especially against Kim and her siblings. Given the other allegations about him being a horrendously abusive creep to Kim during their marriage who isolated her from her support system, I don't doubt that he would want to hold these photos to use as leverage against the Kardashian family. Kim told People Magazine later, "Courtney had a photo of her naked and I stole it to use as blackmail, and I put it in my purse. I was so mean. I hid the purse and someone stole it and tried to sell the photos 10 years later. No matter, while some of the details as to how the photos got into someone else's possession might have been fudged, Damon's spin on the situation that Kim vindictively tried to leak her own sister's nudes seems like absolute horseshit given Kim's reaction to the news that the photos could become public.
2: It's just Courtney. I'm responsible for ruining someone's life.
1: Kim, you're not responsible for something that Courtney did in high school. I can
2: handle this. It's just Courtney. You know I've
1: been through Kim, this. Kim, you were 16. But it years was
2: old. all my fault. You know what I mean?
0: If Kim Kardashian is this good of an actress, I don't know why she'd be wasting her time on a reality show instead of using her industry connections to become an Oscar award-winning performer. The man trying to sell the pictures, photographer Eric Ford, soon had the photos and his laptop seized by the FBI as both Kim and Courtney were underage when their respective photos were taken, meaning Ford was trying to sell child pornography, though it doesn't appear that he was ever arrested for that. The child porn scandal at the end of season 1 was the first big emotional moment the series managed to capture, but over the next 16 years, Keeping Up With The Kardashians and its many spin offs would go on to showcase many, many more dramatic episodes with very real implications for the family's life. By the end of season 3, Chloe goes through her first big breakup on camera, though her boyfriend at the time was only shown on screen in the same episode that shows the relationship ending. It will not be the last time the series shows Chloe discovering she's been cheated on. In the same episode Chloe breaks up with her boyfriend, Courtney also dumps Scott for the first time on camera, which will happen a few more times throughout the series. Kim is happily in a relationship with her boyfriend at the time, Reggie Bush. He's not really on the show much and doesn't ever seem to be as serious about the relationship as Kim is, but those chickens will come to roost later. For now, the newly single status of Chloe and Courtney will be the setup for the first Keeping Up with the Kardashians spin-off, Courtney and Chloe Take Miami. So to wrap up this era, let's take stock of where the Kardashian empire is in 2007 to 2009. At this point, Keeping Up With The Kardashians is still confined to its 30-minute sitcom-esque format with a modestly sized budget. Scenes are filmed primarily in a few recurring locations, mostly the Dash stores the sisters manage and family members' actual homes, especially Kris and Caitlin's. Producers have since revealed that the girls were still doing their own hair and makeup during season one, except for in their interviews, and they didn't get a dedicated lighting guy until about season three. While the family was certainly rich as fuck compared to the average American, they perhaps weren't as wealthy right away as some might think. Producers told Variety in 2021 that it took until season four for most of the cast to stop flying commercial and start flying business class or higher. Much of the family's money went into maintaining an upper-class lifestyle, one they couldn't always completely afford. They had a big house, for sure, but watching the first seasons of Keeping Up, you don't really get the sense that they were springing for an interior decorator. The inside of their home is... Kinda ugly? Family members have since told stories about frequently borrowing money from others to pay their bills. In 2008, Brandy's mother, last name Norwood, filed a lawsuit against Kim, alleging that while Kim was working as Brandy's stylist, she and her siblings racked up about $120,000 of charges on one of the Norwood family's credit cards without permission allegedly using the money to fund the Kardashian family's clothing stores, Dash and Smooch. The Kardashians denied the allegations, and the suit was later dismissed, so there's no way for me to know the legitimacy of Norwood's claims. But certainly, Kim's previous work as a celebrity stylist, along with her family's retail business selling high-end women's clothing, helped her cultivate a constantly rotating wardrobe full of designer garments without her always having to pay full price for the items. The personal style of each Kardashian sister will evolve throughout their careers, but even in the early stages, they were starting to develop their own signature looks. Much of their wardrobe featured your standard Y2K garb, juicy couture tracksuits, big chunky belts, oversized bags, etc. Their more distinct fashion senses came through toward the end of the decade, with the sisters often donning shades of purple or animal print patterns in their clothing. More than anything, the older sisters could frequently be seen wearing the infamous bodycon bandage style dress. Kim especially had a deep love for her Veil Legere-designed bandage dresses, accentuating her curves with the design's tightly fitted, movement-restricting fabric. And it's funny, when they put the, the um, dresses on, it feels like a girdle. <laughs> and then when you take it off, it's like, oh, thank you. you need to put on another one, it's like... Legere's influence on Kim Kardashian's style is indicative of where Kim was at in her fashion evolution by the late 2000s. Legere's designs were expensive to purchase, typically selling in the upper hundreds, but they never had top designer esteem. It was more juicy couture than haute couture. But the Kardashians only really had rich girl clout at the time. They didn't have high fashion clout. In fairness to the family, the high fashion world wouldn't fully collide with the world of celebrity until a few years later. It's why you can find so many photos from the 2000s of celebs wearing weirdly casual outfits on red carpets and at hot ticket events, and why the Met Gala wouldn't be thought of as standard pop culture spectacle until the mid-2010s. There were a handful of celebrities who were embraced by the upper echelon of fashion in the 2000s, but a family of reality stars, the most prominent member of which was still mostly known for a sex tape, was definitely not making the cut. Kim's favored bandage dress would fade out of style relatively fast, but the voluptuous bodies she and her sisters flaunted with the dress wouldn't. Kim's ass plays such a large part of her public image in the 2000s that it inspires the very first bit of dialogue on Keeping Up. I
2: think she has a little junk in the trunk. <laughs> oh,
1: she's like got the jiggles.
0: Shh.
1: Well, she's always had an ass. Where did this come from?
0: How Kim maintains the shape and size of that ass, as well as her tiny waist and perfectly toned physique, marks her first huge point of impact on Western beauty standards and fashion. The Kardashians used their bodies for branding, even in these first years, selling workout DVDs and diet supplements like Quick Trim and promoting what Elizabeth Weisinger calls glamour labor. Weisinger writes, With the rise of fast fashion, everyone can look like they wear couture, but can everyone have the couture body? The message today seems to be, you can if you work for it. In our image-saturated age, fashion, once a rarefied domain for the very few, has been spread to the masses by the likes of fast fashion purveyors H&M and Forever 21, and countless fashion websites promising how-tos and where-to-buys. Fashion has even permeated the lowliest level of attire, sweatpants. Once used to hide the figure, they have become part of a fashion movement called athleisure, which leaves nothing to the imagination. Effortless is no longer the goal. Now, a body has to look like a product of work, the kind of work evidenced by Kim Kardashian's effortful body. The Kardashian-Jenner family's bodies and faces will go through some changes throughout their time in the spotlight. Some of that can be attributed to trends in beauty regimens and makeup, like the mid-2010s rising popularity of contouring, which the Kardashians will somewhat become the faces for. As social media becomes of larger importance to the family's brand, filters and photo edits will also play a major role in establishing the Kardashian aesthetic. But of course, what many speculate is that the Kardashians have frequently put themselves under the knife for more bodily-invasive cosmetic procedures. The influence of plastic surgery will have to be an evolving conversation throughout this retrospective, and how honest the Kardashians have been about their own histories with med spas and plastic surgeons is up for debate. At least by season 3 though, I don't see much evidence that the family has had any more work done than they've already copped to. Both Chris and Courtney got their breast implants prior to Keeping Up's premiere, and Caitlin had had work done to her face both before the reality series and during its early seasons. Other than that, I wouldn't doubt that the family's good looks were mostly natural, what remains constant is the family's apparent penchant for aesthetic beauty. Even Kylie Jenner's love for makeup, something that will eventually have her declared the world's youngest self-made billionaire, whatever that means, is featured as a plot line in season three when she was just 11 years old. Everybody's jumping on me like it's my problem. It's not my problem, it's Kylie's problem. She's got too much makeup on. How old is Courtney when she got a boob job? I can imagine those who get really conspiratorial about the Kardashian empire might try to imply that that third season episode was a part of a calculated marketing effort to lay the narrative groundwork for Kylie's later business moves, but I assure you, the Kardashians have never been thinking that far ahead. What's most striking about these early episodes is that the family clearly didn't know how massive this reality TV venture would be for their lives or careers. Sure, prior to Keeping Up, Kim herself desperately wanted to be famous, and the show was another outlet for that. But when the show was pitched and greenlit, the women's plans for the series more heavily revolved around the management of their clothing stores Dash and Smooch. It was just supposed to be an ad for their already established businesses, not the platform to launch their careers as influencers. With Kim's rising publicity post-sex tape, the focus of the series changed from advertising Dash to advertising Kim as an emerging star. The other family members weren't even seeking fame in the same way she was at the time, represented by the fact that in the first episode, Kris Jenner introduces herself as Kim's manager, not the family's manager.
2: I'm Kris Jenner
0: because I'm the mom. I'm the mom and Kim's manager. Okay, Kim, it's your world. I just live in it. It wouldn't be until season three that Kris would take on another one of her daughters as a client. I'm
1: actually shocked that Courtney wants to take on Kris as a manager because Courtney talks so much about Kris
0: and Kim's kiss assing relationship. It's kind of shocking, but go ahead. Join the dark side, Court. The episode after Courtney starts venturing out as an up-and-coming celebrity, Chloe embarks on a celebrity campaign of her own as an ambassador for PETA's anti-fur crusade. Then two episodes after that, the three Kardashian girls get into a fight over Kim's decision to release her first perfume with a name the other two argue should be trademarked for a product put out by the three of them. Family branding was an emerging conversation for the Kardashians by the late 2000s, but Kim was still the primary member actively trying to be famous. What's also worth pointing out is that at this point, Kris Jenner is the only member of the family credited as a producer on Keeping Up, but that will change later. And of course, the overall format of the series will evolve past its early era sitcom-esque contrivances. In a lot of ways, it will get more real as the family's fame eventually offers more legitimately interesting storylines that they don't need to manufacture for a 30 minute plot especially since early era plots sometimes seem to contradict the star's real lives. Like in the season 1 episode in which Courtney and Scott almost get hitched in Vegas but decide against it because they want a bigger wedding with all of their family members present?
1: But this feels wrong. You're rushing it. Bruce isn't here.
0: Your little Mm -hmm. sisters
1: aren't here. Mm -hmm. They would
0: die if they thought they weren't your bridesmaids. Where are his parents? Right. Where's his family? You know, this is about family. If the couple was ever actually that intent on holy matrimony, You'd think that wedding would have been on the horizon at some point in the near future after that moment, but it never was, even when the two started procreating. Scott tries to convince Courtney to marry him several times, yet she repeatedly verbalizes throughout the rest of the show that she isn't interested in getting married, theoretically at all, though of course the issue turned out to be Scott rather than the institution of marriage. Either that season one episode was the result of a very, very brief lapse in judgment for Courtney, which is possible, or it was a constructed plot for TV that the couple never intended to actually follow through with. The relationship the rest of the family has to Scott in these first years is also remarkably different from the relationship they have to him now. My problem with Scott is he is a con artist, he's annoying, and
1: I mean, honestly, someone needs to beat the f*** out of him." I love being around
0: Scott, I love hanging out with Scott. Him and I get along so well, he's one of my best friends. And while I don't think their initial dislike for Court's current ex was totally fabricated, it does still strike me as a bit overemphasized in the family dynamic. Everyone in the family except for Courtney will seem to develop an increased fondness and patience for Scott throughout the coming years, despite him doing objectively worse stuff. Maybe they actually developed more compassion for him as time went on. Maybe they realized he's too much of a fan favorite to completely cast out of their lives. Maybe his fathering of Courtney's children created a more permanent space for him in the family. But definitely, the ways in which all three of the Kardashian girls talk about men in these early seasons is astoundingly different from how they would act in their own personal relationships going forward. I'm a lot stronger than you You're like a you man-hater. No,
1: I'm not. I just don't let people <laughs> me over. And when you cheat on me, you're gone. And you're not going to do it again and again and again. I'm sorry. That's not normal. That's not respect. That's not what boyfriends do to their girlfriends. So I'm not going to let someone do that. I'm pr- being protective and loving you.
2: i always no, telling me that I need Therapy. You might. For what? <laughs> I definitely think Courtney needs therapy. I feel like there's no reason that she has to feel like anyone can
0: treat her like this. Okay, you've all let men treat you like shit. Maybe lay off Courtney for a minute. Chloe's insistence that she demands a certain level of respect in her relationships has some very sad irony given later developments. But I at least think that when Kim and Chloe said this stuff back in season 3, it wasn't just another front for the camera. They probably thought they meant all of it. Unfortunately, people often don't realize their own susceptibilities to other people's abusive behaviors until well after they've already become victims to that abuse, if they can even recognize their vulnerabilities then. Underestimating your own tolerance for mistreatment is a very human thing to do. And a lot of what makes the Kardashians and their reality TV ventures so fascinating is in all the vulnerabilities they didn't mean to or even really realize that they were sharing. The Kardashian empire will grow from here. But as their fame increases, the family's perspective on what it means to live a normal, private life will simultaneously disintegrate. No matter how rich and famous they are, that just cannot be good for these people psychologically. But boy, will it be fun for us to watch. So join us next time when America decides to make Kim Kardashian public enemy number one because she got a divorce too quickly or something. I don't know. Bye. Did you guys know that I'm like the number one Google search last week? Do you also know
2: that you were the number two on the dumbest people? (laughs) (laughs) From the New York Post. (laughs) As long as they're talking about me, honey. You know why she's the most Googled person?
1: Hmm. Because she's Googling herself.